Please be seated. Christ is risen. Since this is Easter Sunday, I thought it would be uh, good to have a couple of special um, artistic type pieces for us to enjoy together. Uh, the first one is a poem, and then uh, we're going to play a song that's uh, been very special to me. I'm going to read part of a poem to you called The Sacrifice. It was written by George Herbert around 1625. Herbert was a poet and an Anglican priest who ministered in Wales. He was born in 1593, <clears throat> and he died in 1633 at the age of 39. I'm sorry if my voice is not good today. <clears throat> this poem was written about the same time that the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, about 400 years ago. The poem is 62 verses long. I've only reproduced about half the poem here. Every stanza ends with the same repetitive rhetorical question with Jesus asking, was ever grief like mine? I've only included that line twice here for the sake of brevity, but it does occur after every stanza. The poem describes Jesus' betrayal, trial, and death. Its main theme is simple and repeated over and over again. We tortured and murdered the very one, the only one, who could rescue us. The irony is profound, as you will see, and it shows up in nearly every verse. Okay, Seth. The Sacrifice by George Herbert. Oh, all ye who pass by, whose eyes and mind to worldly things are sharp, but to me blind, to me who took eyes that I might you find, was ever grief like mine. Without me, each one who doth now me brave had to this day been an Egyptian slave. They used that power against me, which I gave. Mine own apostle, who the bag did bear, though he had all I had, did not forbear to sell me also and to put me there. Arise, arise, they come. Look how they run. Alas, what haste they make to be undone. How with their lanterns do they seek the sun. With clubs and staves they seek me as a thief who am the way of truth, the true relief, most true to those who are my greatest grief. See, they lay hold on me, not with the hands of faith, but fury. Yet at their commands I suffer binding, who have loosed their bands. All my disciples fly. Fear puts a bar betwixt my friends and me. They leave the star that brought the wise men of the east from far. The priests and rulers all false witness seek against him who seeks not life, but is the meek and ready paschal lamb of this great week. Then they accused me of great blasphemy that I did thrust into the deity who never thought that any robbery. Then they condemn me all with that same breath which I do give them daily unto death. Thus Adam my first breathing rendereth. Okay. 
Herod in judgment sits while I do stand, examines me with a censorious hand. I him obey, who all things else command. The Jews accuse me with despitefulness and vying malice with my gentleness, pick quarrels with their only happiness. Hark how they cry aloud still, crucify, it is not fit he live a day, they cry, who cannot live less than eternally. Why, Caesar is their only king, not I. He clave the stony rock when they were dry, but surely not their hearts, as I well try. Behold, they spit on me in scornful wise, who by my spittle gave the blind man eyes, leaving his blindness to mine enemies. My face they cover, though it be divine, as Moses' face was veiled, so is mine, lest on their double dark souls either shine. Servants and abjects flout me, they are witty. Now prophesy who strikes thee is their ditty. So they in me deny themselves all pity. The soldiers lead me to the common hall. There they deride me, they abuse me all. Yet for twelve heavenly legions I could call. Then with the reed they gave to me before, they strike my head, the rock from whence all store of heavenly blessings issue evermore. They bow their knees to me and cry, Hail, King! Whatever scoffs or scornfulness can bring, I am the floor, the sink, where they it fling. The soldiers also spit upon that face which angels did desire to have the grace and prophets once to see, but found no place. Thus trimmed forth, they bring me to the rout, who crucify him, cry with one strong shout. God holds his peace at man, and man cries out. They lead me in once more, and putting then mine own clothes on, they lead me out again. Whom devils fly, thus is he tossed of men. My cross I bear myself until I faint. Then Simon bears it for me by constraint, the decreed burden of each mortal saint. O all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me. Such sorrow, as if sinful man could feel or feel his part, he would not cease to kneel, till all were melted, though he were all steel. Now heal thyself, physician, now come down. Alas, I did so when I left my crown and father's smile for you to feel his frown. Betwixt two thieves I spend my utmost breath, as he that for some robbery suffereth. Alas, what have I stolen from you? Death. They gave me vinegar mingled with gall, but more with malice. Yet when they did call with manna, angels' food, I fed them all. Nay, after death their spite shall further go, 
for they will pierce my side. I full well know that as sin came, so sacraments might flow. Was ever grief like mine? But now I die, now all is finished. My woe, man's wheel, and now I bow my head. Only let others say, when I am dead, never was grief like mine. And now some music. Uh, as you may remember, my brother passed away just before Christmas. He was only one year older than me, and Susan and I spent the last ten days of his life with him. This song has special meaning for me this year because of that. It was written by my brother Jonathan's mother-in-law, Harriet Fisher, who I met on several occasions, and it was recorded by a couple that sang at my brother's wedding. It is called This Little Child. It was written 40 years ago. Harriet Fisher wrote this song in less than one hour as her family was driving on I-70 across Kansas. The Hawaiians, the couple who sang it, were in the front seat, and they were talking about the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. This is a simple narration of the Christmas story and Easter all in one, about a little child sent to earth in humble beginnings to rescue us from our darkness. This little child grew up. He died on the cross. He rose again, and he invites us to come home. You would bow your head and pray with me this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would gather our attention to witness on the theater of your holy word the beauties of your redemption, the power of your resurrection, Lord, the fellowship of your sufferings. So that we, Lord, as we consider and meditate, on the power of Almighty God, sufficient to save, and the indwelling Spirit that now empowers your people to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our hearts and beyond, that we might be so moved to take, Lord Jesus, more steps in sanctification and in glorifying you beyond these walls to places where the gospel has yet to draw dead ears to hear or open blind eyes to see. It is a great privilege to be the steward of the story of resurrection, of Easter, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have called us to take Your Word forth. You have called us to write Your Word on the table of our heart. You have called us to meditate, to worship, to sing, to fellowship, to pray, and to grow, Lord. I pray that all of this would take place today as we pause and consider the majesty of this season, Lord, that we remember through the pages of your holy word now. Holy Spirit, do your mighty work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we have the record of Paul and Barnabas 
and especially Paul preaching in Antioch. This is one of the first sermons that we have recorded in the book of Acts, which chronicles the movement of the early church in obedience to Christ's command at the Great Commission that he would have his word go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So here on the threshold of the uttermost parts of the earth, Paul is bringing a sermon, delivering to this people the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord to ears that had never heard it before. We read in Acts 13, 13 through 44 this great message. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch, Messiah, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with lifted, uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offering God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26, Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says in another psalm, 
You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Verse 42 records the reaction of the people as they went out. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Amen. Think about the context which these words were delivered and ask yourself this question. How would you motivate or what would motivate you as a microscopic minority, just a small band, a few individuals, in a world of unbelievers, in a world of people who have never heard this message, of one who is raised from the dead, born of a virgin, sent from God, delivered to man to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, a message utterly foreign to the sin-deaf ears of man. How in the world could a microscopic minority stand against the prevailing political and religious winds of their day at the cost of their own lives for a cause they could not fully realize in their lifetime, losing their fortunes, reputations, families, many of them, their comforts, their livelihoods, and security along the way. How, I say, how could this possibly have happened? Paul provides the answer in his message to this church, yet to be a church in Antioch. In his first declaration of the gospel to them, the answer is this. Make that small, unlikely band, that microscopic minority, witnesses. Make them witnesses to the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and then equip them with the message that He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and by one man, therefore, has come the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through 21 And such was Paul and company. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail. Paul and his companions, though few in number, created huge waves of controversy. Even in this record, we see at the end of this sermon preached, it didn't take long at all, just seven short days, and at the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Today, I can't tell you exactly what the statistics are, but there are millions, not a billion plus Christians, professing Christians in the world today. Christianity is certainly one of the world's major religions. Christianity is so spread and proliferated across this land that if you drive across rural America, you'd be hard-pressed to find a town of any measurable size without one church at least in it. 
that has some kind of claim to Christianity. Some kind of sign posted outside on the property that indicated this church gathers to worship Jesus Christ, the same Christ, hopefully, if they're preaching the Word of God that Paul was preaching to these people in Antioch thousands of years ago. The irony is this. Today, in spite of so many confessing believers, how is it that we, His people, His ambassadors, no less commissioned to bring the gospel forward in our day than that first wave was thousands of years ago, how is it that we seem to struggle to such great degree with our own pride, with our own selfishness, self-centeredness, with our own confidence, with fear of man, timidity, shyness, and whatever else stops us from declaring the truth of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, risen again, and now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. I submit to you the answer is the same. It's because to that degree we haven't felt the truth and the core of our being that Christ has risen from the dead, has ascended to the Father, and now rules and reigns and is the first fruits of all who will rise again one day. Herein is the power of His people to be His witnesses. When we are witness to the fact, truly believe, firmly convinced, and it is written on the tables of our heart that Christ has risen from the dead, And that this message is that no matter how small the band of ambassadors we have gathered here today, or how broadly reaching now, some thousands of years later, the message of Christianity has become, the power is in the truth of the gospel. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and in that resurrection is promised and secure our own resurrection one day, we will once again become that fearless band of misfits who brings the gospel without compromise to the ends of the world. O Lord, I pray that this would be the case. Through Paul and company, through Paul and his associates, through Paul, Apollos, all the Lord called, all the Lord commissioned to be disciples, all that came to Christ subsequently as a result of their ministry, through them, the resurrection was not something that they commemorated once a year. The resurrection was not a quaint holiday as an excuse to fellowship about things that they preferred to talk about but really weren't centered in Christ. For them, the resurrection was the very fiber of their message. It added to them the active ingredient as the Holy Spirit had made them witnesses to His truth, that gave their message endurance, perseverance, led them to the martyr's death joyfully. Even the second generation and third generation, spiritually speaking, if you go back and read some of the history of the church, it's a strangely different environment and attitude exhibited in their writings and their confessions. For some, there was almost a desire to be martyred for Christ's sake. For some, they almost wished that they would have that great privilege, only that Christ might be all the more glorified in their death. Why could they say such a thing? Why could they believe such a thing? Because they knew their Savior and Lord was all the more glorified in His death. Thus, 
when they stayed close to the message. And the Spirit was inside His people in His church to great and manifest degree. The union with Christ was such that it made for a well-equipped, though small church that did not compromise and indeed turn the world upside down. We find in this message alone that the theme certainly could be underscored as resurrection. Paul mentions it four times if you were taking note in verse 30, in verse 33, verse 37, verse 34. Four times Paul refers to the resurrection to underscore the points of his message as he delivers the truth of the gospel to the unbelievers at Antioch. A heading, the resurrection shouts. In Paul's message, the resurrection shouts the following. Behold, the linchpin of historical meaning. The resurrection is the linchpin, that is, the key to historical meaning. All history, the resurrection, is secondly the vindication of Christ Himself. It is the truth of Jesus Christ manifest and known. It's the final word, it's a declaration of defeat echoing through all of the future into eternity that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is also the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Number four, it's the verification of the incorruptible. And number five, it's the herald of atoning power. The resurrection shouts, Behold the linchpin of historical meaning in Acts 13, 16 through 25. And notice this pattern here, and you might remember other New Testament messages, as we read again in verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, then notice this historical record beginning in verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king. And God gave them Samuel, the son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23 Moving through this history of God's covenant people, he says, Of this man's offering, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as He has promised. He rewinds just a little to John the Baptist, verse 24, Before His coming, Jesus' coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, behold. After me is coming one, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And who was this one whom John the Baptist, the greatest of prophets, and declared so by Jesus himself? Who was this one of whom John the Baptist said, I am not worthy to untie his sandals? It is our resurrected Messiah. It is Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the one and the only one, born of a virgin, descended from the Father, taking on the flesh the incarnate Word of God, suffering and dying as we studied last week, according to the prophetic record, everything fulfilling every just demand of the law, in perfect obedience, satisfying the requirements of justice, so that in His flesh 
he might be the perfect and full sacrifice for all of the sins of mankind who place their faith in him. That is he of whom John said as a sinner himself and certainly not God and only his prophet I must decrease, he must increase. I am not worthy to unstrap his sandal. Behold the linchpin of historical meaning. The Old Testament makes sense in Christ. The world makes sense in Christ. This wicked world suffers the groans and the effects of sin. It makes sense if God is holy. It makes sense if man has fallen away. And redemption and patience that God has endured in this wicked world makes sense if there is Christ. It makes sense when we consider that at the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, born of woman, came. Came to die, came to suffer, came to proclaim the kingdom and to be resurrected and to ascend and to rule and reign at the right hand of the Father. Paul was just another echoing this truth. Think of Peter at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 36. Peter stands up an unlikely fisherman and a crowd of people who are doing double takes. Who are these people? Who gives them the authority? Why are they speaking in such a way at this hour of the day? And Peter speaks with the clarity and boldness that only the Holy Spirit can supply and says that Jesus Christ makes sense of history and in Him is salvation. Stephen, the first martyr, we read of his account in Acts chapter 7 that was preceded by one of the greatest sermons, certainly my favorite, I think, in the New Testament where he goes through the historical record of all of Israel's history and declares its apex, its culmination, its finale, its climax in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and he dies with eyes trained heavenward and a smile of patience and peace on his face as he's welcomed into the presence of Almighty God by his Savior and Lord as the last stone takes the breath from his lungs. And Peter again preaches to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 43, after he himself received the revelation that Jesus Christ now will, in Paul's words, break down the middle separation even between the peoples, thus fulfilling the promise to Abraham that you will be a blessing to all the nations. The linchpin of historical meaning is Jesus Christ, the resurrected, ruling, and reigning Savior. As Paul delivers this introduction, he's delivering, if you will, the ultimate historical prologue of covenant. Think of Nehemiah 9. If you're interested in doing a little bit more recapping, there's a message we preached that I intend to be something of a theme for this year and January 4th of this year entitled Textbook Awakening. We brought our attention back to a time where God's people reinstated their covenant and constitution as a nation and they did so by opening their worship session with a historical prologue. That is an introduction, a basis and a foundation for them as a people and their unity upon the providential, sovereign, mighty, redemptive, covenantal work of God among them. And so Paul does the same. This is covenantal language. We've referred to covenant documents in their format in recent messages. Paul is mindful of that as he declares the historical prologue of God's work among his people leading up to the son of David sacrificed for our sins and risen again forever. 
in our world today, this is a message we need to hear. History has lost its meaning in our consciousness because we've lost the meaning of the resurrection. If Jesus Christ is no longer the linchpin of historical meaning, then man loses all will to live with any direction, purpose, hope, future, destiny, or direction. Man loses everything if he loses Christ. And so we in our culture are descending into a moral, confusing, dark abyss. Why? Because the linchpin is being pulled from the historical meaning of our culture. And I'm telling you, it will return when his people like Paul are freshly motivated once again with the fire of the Holy Spirit, giving them the message of Jesus Christ resurrected and reigning on their lips, in their heart, through their deeds and their actions, calling this so-called postmodern world dead in their trespasses and sins to repent because Jesus Christ is risen and judgment will soon come. There is a hell to reckon with, and only in a Messiah can sins be paid for. Secondly, behold the vindication of Jesus Christ. And here we get to the first mention of resurrection. Notice first of all in verse 26, where Paul shifts in his sermon, and it's signaled by readdressing his audience. His target group, if you will, his target audience. He had said in verse 16, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. He repeats these words in so many words. Again in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us it has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Paul signals the theme of this message by speaking directly. Men, you who have ears to hear, eyes to see, women, children, all before me today, sons of Abraham, those who fear God, all, whether you are of the historical covenant or those who have a curiosity about the ruler and the governor of this universe. Listen, this is the message of salvation. The man who was just recently crucified by the same rulers who were fulfilling the word of God in their actions condemning him. That man who was not worthy of death but found guilt, guilty and unjustly so by the civil authority of the day upon the wishes of the people who had risen up false raised a false witness against him, and they had carried out all that was written of him. They were the ones who took him to the tree to be crucified and laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Paul is saying that Christ is vindicated and the work of redemption is signed and sealed. It is evident and Christ is proven true, both by those who heard and are hearing now and by those who hated him and were responsible for his very death. 
I was moved by that poem that Stanley read to us earlier, where time after time, these ironies were portrayed in that poetic form. The very one who could save us and had the power of the host of heavenlies and all the world at his disposal, who could summon a thousand angels or legions of angels to defend him, took on the form of a servant, suffered and died, submitted to this. The irony is striking. And here there is another striking irony. Those who hated Christ, opposed Him, wanted to destroy His work and His message, stamp out His memory, and stop this, whatever they saw it as, a zealot uprising movement that threatened to undermine their own authority because they did not recognize Him or understand the utterances of the prophets which were read on every Sabbath. They, against In spite of themselves, fulfilled them, that is, the words of the prophets, by condemning Jesus Christ. There is an inevitable sovereignty on display in the work of Christ that day. Whether those who heard Him or who hated Him, they both were playing into the hands of Almighty God. And in His resurrection, Jesus Christ demonstrated that He was cleared of all charges But instead of his innocence, only his innocence being on display, which would have been a tragedy in itself that any just man would die an unjust death, we find that he actually did take the payment for sins that he had not committed so that in his resurrection we might raise with him having our sins paid for by his death. And thus, Jesus Christ in his vindication... And in His resurrection, proving once and for all, He was fully God and fully man and fully paid for every sin of all who place their faith and trust in Him. The resurrection shouts, Behold the vindication of Christ. The resurrection shouts, Behold the linchpin of historical meaning. And number three, the resurrection shouts, Behold the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Paul expounds on, the, on this as we continue to read Acts 13, 32 and following. And we bring you good news, Paul says to the crowd, that God promised to their, the fathers. This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are, today, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Did you catch the second reference to resurrection? I'll read it again as you turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. We'll read in context this citation from the Psalms. Paul is preaching to the crowd and he says, backing up to 31, And for many days Christ appeared to those who had come up with them from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. When Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, it signaled, it shouted, Behold, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Notice in the beginning the context with which this delivery was given. Something had preceded Paul's message. 
It was the reading of the Law and the Prophets. Chapter 13, verse 15, After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, would you exhort the people? Also, there's a reference to the Law and the Prophets and the regularity with which the Jews would have been familiar with these words. Verse 27, those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Now moving to Psalm chapter 2, we get a snapshot of what Paul is referring to expanded just a little when he says that Jesus Christ in His resurrection fulfilled the law and the prophets. Hear the prophetic voice of the psalmist echoing Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You wonder about the confidence that we marveled at in the beginning of of this message. Putting ourselves in the perspective of the first wave of truth. Cascading over the borders of ethnic Israel. Going to the Gentiles. What? gave Paul what imbued his spirit and his mind with the boldness to make such audacious statements in the public square, in the synagogue, before Caesars, kings, Agrippa, powers and authorities, princes and rulers, and imperial kingdoms and powers. What gave Paul that kind of confidence? Well, he knew by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father had fulfilled the second psalm. And thus he came to Antioch representing the king of kings, the king of Agrippa, the king of Herod, the king of Caesar, the king of Pilate, the king of any king who will come, whose name will be known in the future, whose name has ever been spoken by any, even thousands, millions of their citizens. Of this king it was said in Psalm chapter 2, the Lord said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. We can almost Read there, today I have crowned you. Ask of me, the Heavenly Father says to the Son, Jesus Christ, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so Paul reads this and realizes that when Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, he took possession of the earth, the ends of the earth, and the nations. And he rules over them with a scepter, with the rod of his righteousness. And if they do not comply to His rule, if they continue in their rebellion, if in their indolence, in their rejection, in their blindness, in their heresy, that rod of iron will dash them in pieces one day like a potter's vessel. And this is the story of the New Testament. It plays out on every page. There's a power that's underscored in the words of the apostles as they, that they spoke that is more rare today than it was then. Perhaps that's why we have so much wishy-washy Christianity. Perhaps that's why the word is not spoken with the same effect that it once had. Not that there'll necessarily be altars flooded with converts. But if, it won't, if, but if not flooded with converts, then flooded with mobs and riots. 
The message of the cross of Jesus Christ, the message of the resurrection, is one that necessarily divides. It is one that polarizes. It's one that bifurcates. It's one that can't be ignored. And when the message is spoken with the spirit of all of the word of God undergirding it and infusing it with its authoritative power, it's a message that warns kings, presidents, from Barack Obama to Kofi Annan or whoever is the head of the UN these days, to Putin, the ruler of Russia and all he's trying to do. The word of God echoes through the mouth of the apostles the fulfillment of these words, be warned, O king, be wise, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is one, a king, that you must fear, that you must tremble before. Kiss the sun, a picture of, servant, of submission in the Near East, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Paul addressed his crowd again, the family of Abraham, those who fear the Lord. Paul knew that only those who understood the promise of Abraham and those who understood the fear of the Lord would grasp the reality, the meaning, the power, and the weight of the resurrection. And in grasping it, they would realize what had been preached in every synagogue and every Sabbath for years and years. That there would one day come a Messiah who would rule and reign. Whose power would be from sea to sea. Whose glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Who would have his every will and way in all of history until that time when all of the elect are gathered into the storehouses of heaven. And he, at his perfect time and will and choosing, decides the new heavens and new earth will come. And that final day of judgment where every last enemy is subdued under his heel is here. Behold the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Fourthly, the resurrection shouts, Behold the, veneration, the verification of the incorruptible. Behold the truth of the Holy One. The verification of the incorruptible, verses 34 and 36 through 36. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. And again, this fourth message or mention of resurrection. But he, Christ, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Here at the third mention of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have another idea attached to that claim. Verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Proof positive in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is the holy one, the incorruptible, the begotten of the Father. The word became flesh dwelling among us. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ is perhaps the most awe-inspiring answer to the question, who is Jesus? Today, many people propose answers to the question, who is Jesus? Often they are personalized. He's my friend. He's my confidant. He's the one I lean on in the day of trouble. 
He's like a father to me. He walks through a life with me. And often, if you've noticed a theme in what I've just said, the theme of our own confession as far as who Jesus is, is very self-centered. That is not to say that Jesus Christ doesn't make a personal, real difference in our lives. It's not to say that Jesus Christ is not responsible for every waking moment of peace, hope, and joy, and satisfaction, and salvation in the heart of every true believer. That is certainly the case. But in answer to the question, who is Jesus? A myriad of answers ought to flood our minds with glorious revelation of sovereign power and truth. He is the Holy One and proven so in the resurrection. He is not just one who stands beside me just like me, but He is one holy and completely sinless, free and from the corruption that this world has wrought on everyone who has trod it save Jesus Christ our Lord. Think back with me, if you would, to the time of temptation when the Holy Spirit leads Jesus Christ from the moment of His baptism to the moment of trial in the wilderness. This probation, the one that Adam failed, Adam so weak, yet we might assume that he was stronger in his convictions and will than any one of us born sinners, gave in to temptation just at the sight of a serpent and tantalizing fruit. Jesus Christ, in his starving and weakened condition, denied bread. He denied the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the flesh. He was offered, ostensibly by Satan himself, rule of all the authorities of the earth. But he refused, because Jesus Christ would rule and reign his way. And he would do it by declaring himself victorious over sin. And he would do it by verifying his holiness, the only one from God, fully God, fully man, when he was resurrected, proof that he was incorruptible. He was the Holy One that everyone hoped more than likely David would be. He was the Holy One that the Jews were longing for when they crowned their first king in Saul. This man had stature, this man had presence, but he was not holy. He was the one that they hoped for when Solomon began to rule and reign. And the nation of Israel had prominence and influence. But Solomon saw corruption. Solomon to great and manifest degree. And so it was with all the prophets. Samuel was a great man. We admire him so. But in 2 Samuel chapter 8, they asked for a king because his sons were corrupt. They took bribes. They perverted justice. They wanted a king. The judge couldn't handle the situation. And so with every type of Christ in the past, we see their failings. From Noah to David to Samuel, all the way through. But there is one. There is one in the lineage of David who is incorruptible. And he proved that he was so at his resurrection. And at the third mention of the resurrection in Paul's sermon, he speaks in this way. Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the incorruptible, fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 16, 10. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. David could not fulfill it. Solomon could not fulfill it. 
None of the fake messiahs in this intertestamental period, none of the zealot movements, none of the political solutions could ever fulfill it. Only one, Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned before, the resurrection is perhaps then the most awe-inspiring answer to the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the perfect, holy Son of God, born of virgin, eternal, fully God, fully man, word become flesh incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, image of God, firstborn of all creation, creator, sustainer, preeminent, firstborn of the dead, propitiatory, full, final, sufficient sacrifice, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, upholding the universe by the word of His power, making purification for the sins of His people, and now sitting, ruling, reigning at the right hand of the majesty, superior to the angels, infinitely greater in power, glory, wisdom, splendor, beauty, ruling and reigning over everything for all eternity in holiness, unfathomable. The resurrection shouts, Jesus Christ is holy. Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus Christ is the champion of the last enemy. And Jesus Christ has risen again as the first fruits of all of us who will rise again to rule and reign with Him one day. Praise the Lord. And finally, in our message today, the title of which I think I failed to mention is Resurrection Bullhorn. I just imagine that device, that sounds shrill in the ear, but it gives the speaker, the street preacher, that much more of a radius when he's preaching. You know, that bullhorn handheld microphone, if you will. When Paul was preaching, I'm sure that it grated against the ears of those who had other ideas of salvation, other philosophies. I'm sure it grated against the ears when we hear the record of those who are unwilling to bow the knee. Yet the truth could not be denied in its power to either convict or to anger the crowds The resurrection and the message of Jesus Christ raised from the dead went forth as a bullhorn to the ears of Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And this bullhorn, this testimony, this amplification of truth that went forward from the throats of the apostles and disciples, it also was a herald of atoning power. The resurrection shouted that Jesus Christ was powerful to save, to save sinners, from the corruption of their own sin. And in his final reference to the resurrection in verse 37, Paul says as much. He says, But he, Jesus Christ, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. But let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And our mind is moved to imagine the crowd that asked to hear more. I'm sure a great many of them, if not all, were shaken to the core as with Peter's preaching, crying out, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? 
if Jesus Christ is incorruptible, if he's the linchpin of history, if he has been vindicated in the resurrection, if truth has come through him, if healing has come through him, healing from sin, if atonement is on the bruised back and the stripes and the bleeding hands and feet of Jesus Christ, I must hear more. Stay, Paul. Stay with us. Tell us more. But then there were those, verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorify in the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Behold, the herald of atoning power, the resurrection shouts that in Jesus Christ's blood is sufficient payment for our sins. The resurrection proves that Christ has the power to forgive sins. And this was Paul's point. In emphasizing the resurrection, he emphasized that for the sinners who had ears to hear in this audience that they could be filled with joy and rejoice with them that the Holy Spirit had provided a way for them to be justified before a holy God. If this message has been spoken rightly this morning, and if this message, the essence of the gospel, is spoken rightly and believed rightly in your heart and on your lips, it will fall on ears in one of two ways. Either it will bring redemption and reconciliation with Almighty God, or rejection and rebuke. And this is exactly what happened. And this was itself fulfilling laws of the, or the law and the prophets. The word of old had said that there would be scoffers, ones who would mock, that they would be astounded, they would find it incredulous, stupid and ridiculous, and thus they would perish. But for those who had ears to hear, for the precious few among whom were appointed, were appointed eternal life, the ones who believed, who the Holy Spirit reached in and softened their hard heart and made it clay, fertile soil for the seed of the word. Among them were found groups who converted to Jesus Christ, confessed their faith, and even a whole city gathered the next Sabbath to hear the word of the Lord. Amazing, amazing indeed. The bullhorn of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was shouted from the rooftops as Jesus had delivered or the command, all the way back in Matthew. We've been reading through Matthew, and in the second discourse, where Jesus is explaining what you should do in light of the kingdom preached, how does a good steward treat the message that he has heard? He says in verse 26 of chapter 10 in Matthew's gospel, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, Proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, 
Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. For everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that you would write the truth of your word in our heart so deep and so profoundly that we cannot help but speak it forth. I pray that the power that we commemorate on Easter would be, Lord Jesus, to us the same wellspring of boldness, joy, rejoicing, endurance, perseverance, faith and grace that it was to those who professed your name of old, who proclaimed the message of the kingdom to the Gentiles for the very first time. Now we, their heirs, heirs of Abraham and heirs of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would give us, Lord Jesus, on the inside, the fire and passion to proclaim that the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides meaning for all of history, and on it eternal life hinges, that it is proof that Jesus Christ, His every word is true, that His claims are sound, profound, and true, and effective, and will be proclaimed and preached until His return. I pray that you would give us the conviction and the insight to see that the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is real and manifest in Jesus Christ and His finished work. That we would know you, dear Jesus, in your holiness, understand you as incorruptible. We would glorify you and worship you in the fullness of who you are revealed in Scripture. And finally, that we would become heralds of the same atoning power that saved this first wave of Christians by grace alone and sent them out into a world of unbelievers to turn it upside down for the glory and the namesake of Jesus Christ their Lord. May we be found faithful doing just that upon your soon return. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.